Welcome to Pathfinder Academy. Class is now in session. Here are your professors, Caleb and Christian. Good morning, class. You may be seated. Today, we're going to talk about Pathfinder 103 Combat Detail. And we're talking about martial combat today. Martial combat being both melee and ranged weapons, such as bows, crossbows, and throwing weapons. Right, pretty much anything but magic. Exactly. And we're also going to cover some things like movement in combat, different things like that. Things that um, people moving around and hitting people with weapons are more concerned about than magic users. Right. There's two types of damage. There's lethal damage and non-lethal damage. Lethal damage is the kind that we talked about when we in our first episode, uh, where you reach zero and you know you're you're un- you're you're disabled and negative, you're unconscious, and then you can die when you reach negative constitution score. That's all lethal damage. Non-lethal damage is something designed to knock somebody out. You can do non-lethal damage with a lethal weapon, you just take a penalty, or there's weapons designed to do non-lethal damage, or unarmed strikes, unless you have proved unarmed combat, I think it's called, unproved unarmed strike, whatever it's called, uh, all do non-lethal damage. And this is the kind of thing where you can knock somebody out, but you haven't really wounded them. Yeah, the way it works is that it doesn't actually deal damage to their hit points, they get a little pool of non-lethal damage that they've taken. Suppose someone has a maximum of 50 health, they've taken 30 lethal damage, meaning they have 20 hit points left. If they take 20 or more non-lethal damage, they're knocked unconscious. And they're not bleeding out like if you they had been hit with regular lethal damage, they're just unconscious. Right, no saving throws to worry about. So suppose an enemy has 50 HP and they've taken 30 regular damage, meaning they have 20 HP left. If they take tw- exactly 20 non-lethal damage... They are staggered. Now, if you had, they had taken lethal damage, they'd be quote-unquote disabled, which is its own condition. Right. When you're staggered, it means you can only take a single move or single standard action in a turn. Right. If they take 21 or greater non-lethal damage, they are rendered unconscious. But they're not bleeding out, they don't have to make any saves, they're just knocked out. Right. Also, suppose now they're taking the 21 dam- non-lethal damage, they're unconscious. The, uh, you're still hitting, you're, for some reason, even though they're knocked out, you're still hitting them with a non-lethal weapon. You're still dealing non-lethal damage. Non-lethal damage will eventually kill a character. Once they take enough non-lethal damage to ex- start exceeding their maximum number of hit points. So suppose this theoretical person took 50 non-lethal damage, let's say. Every point of non-lethal damage after that 50 is going to count as lethal damage. Gotcha. So this is somebody just pummeling somebody with their fist. Yeah, you got your non-lethal sap and you forgot to pick up any other weapon. You're like, die, die, die. (laughs) But this is like, man, when Yakuza gets involved in your campaign. Like, you know, we have Yakuza in here and they're trying to interrogate somebody. It's like, this can last a long time, buddy. Uh, non-lethal damage also heals. Pull fingernails is five points of non-lethal damage. You got ten. Oh, is that <laughs> you will last somewhere? a long oh, time. I don't imagine if it was. I hope oh not. my gosh. <laughs> the Torturer's Handbook. <laughs> That's it. We're publishing a new book. <laughs> the Torturer's Handbook. And you know what's involved, what's included in that Torturer's Handbook, right? The anti-paladin kicking pigs. Right, yeah. Right, you know, that there's a certain amount of <laughs> if damage. If you see him do that, you have to make a will save or you're scared. Right, or if he's hit by the pig, it's five non-lethal damage. Yeah. Just the fingernails. It's all in there. You guys got to read up, okay, guys? We didn't, we're not your parents here. Come on. Also, non-lethal damage heals a lot quicker uh, than... Um, regular hit Regular damage. damage. Uh, like, you know how you get one hit point back per character level per eight hours rest? Non-lethal damage is one hit point back per character level per one hour of rest. Yes, so usually you sleep faster. You sleep in a day, you you pretty much recovered. Yeah, and if you suppose you get knocked out by lethal damage, it's going to take you a while to come back to knocked out by non lethal damage. It's like the movies; you're going to get back up in a couple hours, if not one or two hours. Right, exactly. So let's start out with a special kind of round that happens at the start of a battle in surprise round. I mean, I think you might figure out when that applies. It's when you surprise your enemies. 
when one group of combatants is unaware of another group of combatants or just individuals if someone is unaware of someone else there is a surprise round and everyone's got a role perception to see if they notice that person if they're in stealth if they're behind a cover of some sort and hiding everyone's got a role perception right this is a rogue's dream yes they need this so someone say your rogue is hidden in a room where there's enemies and he's waiting for your allies to engage in combat. The rogue's hiding in the corner. Once your allies, you're the rogue, your allies come in and start combat, all the enemies have to roll perception to see if they can see you. All of them that fail, you get a surprise round on them, meaning that you can act, take either a standard or a move action, and then the normal turns proceed afterwards. Anyone that sees you, um, makes their perception check, will also move in the surprise round. That's correct. Um, During the surprise round, and during the first round of any combat, whether it be surprise round or just a regular first round, everyone is flat-footed. What's flat-footed? Flat-footed means that uh, you haven't acted yet, you're not able to react quickly. Mechanically, what this means is that you lose your dexterity and dodge bonuses to AC. Right. And as soon as you make a move action, you now regain those things. Yep, until you get a turn, you are flat-footed. So suppose the rogue got a surprise round off and there's an unaware enemy of him. So he gets a surprise round and he's within 30 feet, so he shoots an arrow. He gets a sneak attack because that character is flat-footed. Then the turns proceed as normal. Suppose the rogue goes at the top of the turn order. That means that the enemy that he just sneak attacked hasn't gone yet. He's still flat-footed. So makes another attack, and again, that is a sneak attack. Absolutely correct. This is still useful if you're not a rogue. Hitting flat-footed AC, for the most part, is going to make hitting an enemy a lot easier. Something else that makes hitting an enemy easier is going versus their touch AC. Everyone has AC, which accounts armor and natural armor and all that. And then their touch AC, which is, is your AC minus your armor bonus. Yeah, your armor, your natural armor, your shield bonus. Right, whatever you would get naturally, just from your your race, I suppose. Uh, what this means is that when it says touch attack, it means that the most common way to think of it is a spell that you're touching someone with. But You're just trying to place your hand on them. Right, in this case, when we talk about weapons, usually this is uh, with firearms. Yes. Firearms, when you're within a certain range... Uh, they do, they, they roll their attacks versus touch AC. Armor doesn't really matter with a bullet. It's going to punch right through the armor. You can still dodge it, This, which is why your dexterity and your dodge still account toward your AC, mm-hmm. but armor is not going to matter in this case. Right. And, you know, that's, that's like the benefit of firearms. They don't do a lot of damage, but they're almost guaranteed to hit every time. That's their strength. Consistency. So movement in Pathfinder, you know, we, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, let's get a little more advanced with it now. There's actually a lot of things that... <laughs> I was going to say, let's start at the grid. Oh, I thought your Christian was making fun of my hand movements. <laughs> We're Italian. We make a justification. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, movements in our in our first episode, but there's actually a ton more uh, things that involve movement, so why don't we start getting into some of those? Yeah, just to remind you, when you play Pathfinder, in case you don't know, you're probably going to play with a little mat mm-hmm. with a little grid, and there's a bunch of squares in the grid. Every square on that grid represents five feet. And when you move through it, every square is five feet of movement. And the average speed for the average character is about 30 feet. Which equals six squares of movement. Smaller characters or dwarves also usually have 20 feet of movement because they're smaller or slower, which will equate to four squares of movement. And different classes, like monks, get to move faster. Barbarians as well, yeah. Um, So, speaking of different classes and what can can change your movement, armor can change your movement speed. Mm -hmm. If you're wearing medium or heavy armor, you move at a uh, lower speed, but light armor doesn't affect you either way. Right. Suppose you're a human, regular 30-foot move speed, you slap on medium or heavy armor, it's going to reduce your movement speed to 20, meaning you can now only move four squares 
a turn. If you're a halfling, which only has a 20-foot move speed, and you slap on some heavy armor, it's going to look silly, but uh, you're going to move 15 feet. But if you're around. a dwarf, you're OP because you can never have your movement speed hampered. Right. Dwarves <laughs> never go under 20 feet for carrying anything. And there's different classes that help you deal with that restriction. People mm-hmm. who are designed to wear heavy armor generally can like avoid it and stuff. Like fighters. Once fighters hit, I think, level 7, they I- can wear heavy armor and it's not affecting their movement speed. They're like, come at me, bro. I can yeah. beat you. I can just sprinting around with their full <laughs> They're just leaps and bounds. Um, now, in that grid move, I said each square costs five movement, but if you move diagonally, there's actually a special rule for this. Yes. Uh, every other move, starting with the first one, counts as actually two movement or ten feet of movement. Right. Or two squares or ten feet of movement. So it would go ten feet of movement, five feet of movement, ten feet uh, of five, movement. Five, ten, five, ten. No, it starts with ten, doesn't it? The first one's five, the second one's ten. Oh, I said that wrong. So starting with the second one. Uh, so it was five feet, ten feet, five feet, ten feet, or single, double, single, double, single, double. Right. Um, this is just to stop the weird cases where you can move diagonally and actually get farther than if you moved regularly. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, z- zigzag around actually would end up getting you farther, which looks really silly. I'm not sure about this, but I think it's also to uh, help with, I mean, you only have a limited size grid. Exactly. You, you don't buy a mat that's super huge because we usually play on like you know tables, like a table the size of somebody's floor. Right. So you you want to make the place feel bigger than what your mat will allow. Sometimes I think um, some other diagonal uh, restrictions is you can't move diagonally past a corner or a wall, uh, but you can move diagonally past a corner if there's another obstacle like a uh, pit or something. Kind of like they assume you hop over it. Um, yeah. Or the, past the, a creature, it feels like you could squeeze and get by them. If the corners of like a building, then no, you can't take a five foot step past it, or you can't move diagonally. Past Past it, but if it's something like a pit or like a really short barrier that you could conceivably hop over, then you can move diagonally. Right. You probably have to make a requisite check to do that of some sort, though. Um, you can move through allies, an ally square. Always remember that. <laughs> That's a really important one. People start playing, they're like, oh, I can't do anything. They're standing in the hallway. You can move through your allies. Move, get out the, the way. way. You push them over the side, but you can't <laughs> stop in their square. No two creatures can occupy the same square. Except for a few exceptions. A fine, diminutive, or tiny creature can move into or through an occupied square, whether it's an enemy or an ally. And as a general rule, any creature can move through a square occupied by a creature three sizes larger or smaller than itself. It's a pretty um, strange rule. You only have to worry about it as a PC if for some reason you're playing a diminutive creature or a tiny creature, which you likely won't be. Or if you start fighting gargantuan things, which actually may eventually happen. Like even giants are large, right? Or what are they? Well, uh, large would only be one size category greater. Yeah, that's what I mean. So like even that wouldn't apply. Right. Giants or something would be pretty common. Mm-hmm. But yeah, gargantuan have... would be like a, you know an elder dragon, which at that point, you hopefully you know your players know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, hopefully <laughs> you don't want to move into. You don't want to be in that square. <laughs> and with fine and diminutive and tiny creatures, they actually have to move into an opponent's square in order to attack them. They don't have five feet of reach like regular people. They have two and a half feet of reach, and they only take up two and a half feet. So they actually have to move into your square in order to attack you. Right. You can't move through an opponent's square, however, um, but there are some exceptions to that, some acrobatics rules. You can check in our skills episode. That's our skills episode. That will tell you all about how you can move through an opponent's square, or if they're helpless, you can go by... um, Helpless being they're unconscious or they're uh, paralyzed or something like that. But do be careful because if they're large creatures uh, and they're helpless, they might count as difficult terrain. Speaking of difficult terrain, Christian, what is difficult terrain? 
Difficult terrain is any sort of terrain that could conceivably hamper your character's movement. Undergrowth, broken ground, glass shattered on the floor. Your mom. Rubble, my mom. <laughs> I was talking about the, the, after our listener's mom, but it could be your mom too. <laughs> I can't tell anymore. You're always talking about people's moms. Um, when you move over difficult terrain, uh, first off, you can't take five foot steps, which I think we're going to talk about. We've talked about a little bit before. We're going to talk about more later. Uh, you cannot take a five foot step. You have to take full rounds of movements. Every square you move through that is difficult terrain counts as two squares of movement. So you're actually using up 10 feet of movement for every square you go in yeah. difficult terrain. And that's when you're moving in a straight line. If you try to move in diagonal when you are in difficult terrain, that's going to take three squares of movement. So 15 feet. And it doesn't it doesn't alternate. It's always three squares. You cannot take a run action across difficult terrain and you cannot charge across difficult terrain. And we'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, if you're occupying a square with two different kinds of terrain, both that would hamper you, you take whatever value would be higher. Yeah, they don't stack, per se. Right. If there's vines and rubble, if the rubble somehow more... I guess both would be two. Yeah, I guess when it comes to spells, some would slow you more. So gotcha, that's spell magically altered the terrain, you would, and it was worse than difficult terrain, then you'd have to use the spell. That's right. Let's talk about uh, squeezing. Um, it's not just a thing you do to a girl you really like. It... <laughs> Why are you squeezing that? That won't that hurt? You're bear hugging her? Why would you do that? Are you That's Zang- all I'm talking are about. Are you Zangief? <laughs> Zangief. <laughs> you don't know me. Uh, when you squeeze through an area, it's not as wide as you. It has to be at least half as big as you. If it's any smaller, you can't squeeze through it. You count it kind of like as difficult terrain almost. It counts as two squares of movement or ten feet. Uh, and while you're squeezing, you get a minus four penalty on attack rolls and a minus four penalty to AC. Big penalties. Um, one time, the really the only time this ever came up in my, one of my campaigns is that it was actually one of a Paizo uh, campaign, Rise of the Ruin Lords. They go to attack some goblins, and the goblins have these little holes cut out in brush, and they had to crawl through the brush. And while they're in the brush, they were considered squeezing. Gotcha. Oh, goblins with minus four AC. Oh my gosh, yeah. you just like throw a rock at them or something? No, no, they actually handled it very well. And if you, they had um, nature stride, they could walk right through it without penalty. Gotcha. So question, like, um, this is a real question. This isn't just like a leading question. Like I had a zombie. It was a big creature. It's like a hulking zombie. And there's tables and chairs around that like made difficult terrain would he have to squeeze between a table and chair or does he like knock them aside how does that work i don't think he would have to squeeze because it's not encompassing his whole body right like when in the case of the little tunnels like you had to squeeze in and it was all around you with the tables and chairs i feel like he would just knock them out of the way gotcha and i think you might come across this when you're talking about when you have your cavalier because a, a, a horse is a large creature means you take up four squares of mm-hmm. space a medium creature only takes up one square and so a lot of this combat encounters designed for you know, players who are only take up one square. So that's where you might, I think, the most time come across that and monstrous creatures who are large. Typically squeezing through stuff. You can squeeze through things that are less than half your width. Uh, you just have to make an escape artist skill check in order to succeed that and beat some relevant DC. I believe there's a table in the escape artist uh, skill description. Right. But it doesn't matter what penalties you hit to movement you do have. You can take a full round action to move five feet in any direction, even diagonally. So if you've been completely hampered by spells and terrain and whatever, no matter what, you could still move that five feet. 
this is the like not helpless if you're helpless or something like that but if you're hampered your movement is hampered at the end of your wizard cast blizzard on you and slow and you're squeezing and a net fell on and you and you're underwater it's a tiny net rope. <laughs> right you can't escape the tiny net you you can take a full round action and move five feet right which isn't a five foot step this is a full this is all you do all turn you're like oh, <laughs> I will make it oh, five feet got it <laughs> I had players uh, where if they weren't within 30 feet of this statue that moved they would instantly freeze. And so this would be a time I was like, God, you make just into that thing. <laughs> now, if That's you're, with prone. Yep. If you're ever prone, knocked on your back, which happens once in a while and definitely can happen to your monsters, uh, you can crawl five feet as a move action. Uh, and this would provoke an attack of opportunity. A couple other... Now, let's go through some move actions. Not necessarily a move like we did through squares and all that, but these are things that will take up your move action. Drawing a weapon. Now, listen, this is bogus. We're going to cover it just because the rules is written, but you'll see in a second. You can draw a weapon as a move action to use in combat, but if you have a BAB of plus one or higher... You can draw your weapon as part of any move action. Like a regular move, as in like you're moving over, you can draw your weapon while you're moving. Right. So this pretty much means you can always draw your weapon as a move act, as you're moving. Unless you know you, for some reason, you multi-class, you're a wizard, sorcerer, witch, prestige into... <laughs> Every time you level up, you pick another caster. <laughs> with zero BAB. Everyone's eventually going to have one BAB, so the general rule would be, unless you play at level one exclusively, you're going to be able to draw a weapon as a move action while you're moving, like as a part of your movement. So then I would say, okay, so I guess I'll never be drawing my weapon as a move action then. Wrong. If you haven't moved that round, the guy's right next to you and you need to attack him, you don't have your weapon out, you need to cost spend that move action uh, to take out your weapon. Exactly. Uh, similarly, um, sheathing the weapon is also a move action. That's right. Uh, the sheathing will invoke an attack of opportunity, which we'll talk about later. Drawing the weapon does not. Right. And drawing ammunition for use with the ranged weapons, bolts, arrows, bullets, that's a free action. Yeah. So it pretty much happens on the turn you're attacking. Like if you're going to shoot a bow, an arrow, they assume part of like that standard action that is a free action is you just take out the arrow out of your quiver and shoot. Exactly. Uh, the important one there actually is shuriken. That's not ta- it counts as ammunition for drawing it. It's a free action, but it's a throwing weapon. Normally, in order to make a full round attack with a throwing weapon, you would have to take quick draw, which will allow you to draw weapons as a free action. Shuriken, you can flurry with it. You can two weapon fight with shurikens, whatever. No, that's a great idea. That's a great thing. Uh, uh, this also all this movement action stuff also applies to uh, anything that you could draw that's like a weapon, wands, scrolls, right. potions, all that to move action to take out. Right. Something else that uh, involves a move action is manipulating an item. So if you pull a lever or if you uh, pick up something, uh, opening a door, those are generally all move actions. Mounting a horse or anything, not a horse, a steed is also a move action. <laughs> That's right. In the world of Pathfinder, I like to get onto my, my uh, drake. <laughs> Where did you get that from? The DM was generous. <laughs> my camel with the celestial template. <laughs> Dude, you haven't seen my backstory. <laughs> uh, standing up, if you're prone, move action. That will provoke an attack of opportunity. Yeah, it will. <laughs> um, which stinks because if you're already down, like you're already, you're already, it's like kicking a guy when he's down. And, and when you evoke attack of opportunity, when you're standing up, you when the enemy makes that attack, it acts like you're still prone. So you get that minus four to your AC for being prone. Right. Um, uh, equipping a shield or dropping a shield is a move action. But guess what? If you if you have BAB of one or higher, you can do that as uh, part of a move action. 
Yeah, and that's important to remember. She, most shields in Pathfinder, the way they work is that they're not like a handle you hold. You actually have to physically strap them to your arm, so you can't just let go and drop it. That arm is going to be taken up. You can't hold anything else into it until you mm-hmm. unstrap it as a move action. If you're carrying a shield but not not having it equipped, you can drop it as a free action. Mm-hmm. But then the if you're just carrying it, that means like you're holding the side of it in your hand. It doesn't count for your armor class. Uh, let's talk about some things that will require a full round action. Some of the more powerful things or interesting things you can do in Pathfinder uh, are balanced by that they're full round actions. So let's go into some of those. Um, the most important thing to remember about full round actions is that even though this takes up your whole round, you can still make a five foot step before or after a full round action. That's right. Or also called a shift. And this is the I don't provoke attack of opportunity. I move just a little bit. Just a little skip hop right away. Right. Quote unquote. You can do something that is one of fairly common with a full round action is a full attack action. A this full- is the whole reason for playing your fighter, your barbarian, your ranger, anything a full BAB. This is your bread and butter. Full round actions. Or full attack actions. You can, uh, you get two attacks, one at your regular attack bonus, and one at a minus five attack bonus. Well, uh, I think we should cover it more general first before we, because that's only with six. So why would you take a full round, a full attack action? Whenever you qualify to make multiple attacks, you have to take a full round action in order to do that. If you qualify for two attacks because of your BAB, which we'll get into in a moment, then you have to take a full round action. If you use two different weapons and you have two weapon fighting, in order to attack with both of them, you need to take a full round action. If you don't take a full round action, you can only attack once with one weapon. Right. If you take a move action and then attack someone, that has to be a regular attack no multiple attacks just one so how do we go about qualifying for multiple attacks let's go through each way to do it first we're going to start with regular weapon you either have one one handed weapon or a two handed weapon or a bow something like that in order to make a full attack action you could do it at any time you don't have to spend just a standard action but until level six it's not going to really help you. Right. Once you hit level six as a fighter or a barbarian or a ranger, any class with full BAB, mm-hmm. your BAB will then be six. Now you can make two attacks. The first attack is going to be at your full BAB, six plus whatever relevant modifiers you have, your strength modifier, weapon focus, whatnot. So you make the first attack of your full attack action with that plus six with everything else piled on top of it. Then you make a second attack at a minus five. Mm-hmm. And notice that your BAB at that point is going to be at 1. So it's 1 plus all your relevant modifiers, strength, weapon focus, and whatnot. You can you qualify for another attack every time you can subtract 5 from your BAB and get uh, at least a minimum of 1. Right. So at level 11 now, you subtract 5, and you have 6, and then you subtract 5 from that, and you have 1. So you can make 3 attacks, 1 at, you know, plus 11 plus everything else, one at plus six, plus everything else, and one at plus one, plus everything else. Right. And then the same thing at level 16. You subtract five, you take one at uh, BAB 16, you take one at BAB 11, uh, 11, you take one at BAB 6, you take one at BAB 1. So let's talk about when you have t- two weapons, one in each hand, or a double weapon. Uh, Note that they're really mechanically the same thing. Uh, double weapons and two weapons fighting are basically the same thing. They have all the same feats and whatnot. Right. The same as what Christian just told you about your regular weapons. But you get a minus 6 and a minus 10 on your offhand. Or if it's a light weapon, a minus 4 and a minus 8. That is gigantic. That is really big. Now, this is the penalty if you don't take two-weapon fighting as a feat. 
Right. Well, I want I want to give an example. Uh, so let's say you're you're a level six fighter. Your BB is six. Let's say you don't have no modifiers. Let's give it straight. You you rolled a character who had tens on everything. I don't yeah. know how you did that. It's a really <laughs> weird campaign, but that happened. All right. Zero with your primary. You guys can't see it, but I'm miming this so well. Minus four with your offhand, mm-hmm. and then back for your primary, which gives you this third attack. One. At a plus one. So you could see how at level six rolling these kind of things, you're not going to get a lot done. That's why there's a whole host of feats which will help you out with this. So first off, uh, obviously having a light weapon, there's categories of weapons, you know, light, one-handed, two-handed. You're going to want a light hand, a weapon in your offhand in order to do two-weapon fighting. Right. There's no... um right-handed, left-handed in Pathfinder. Right. The only time your offhand, quote-unquote, comes into play is when you're two-weapon fighting. You pick one hand to be your offhand. It doesn't right. really matter. It doesn't really affect anything. You just need a light weapon in that offhand. As long as you have one light weapon, you don't need a light in both. As long as you have a... Mm-hmm. You can have a long sword, which is a one-handed weapon in your primary, quote-unquote primary hand, and then like a dagger in your offhand. Right. And then you take the two-weapon fighting feet. What the two-weapon fighting feat is does is reduce the penalties you have for two-weapon fighting so that whenever you take a four-round action and fight with both weapons, you take a minus two on both of those attacks. Non-light weapons, it would go from a, a minus four and minus four, and with a light-hand weapon, it would be a minus two and minus two. Correct. So suppose you're someone, level one, you have two weapons, let's say two daggers to keep it simple, and you have two-weapon fighting. That means if you're standing next to someone... And you get a, your, your turn starts, you could take a full round action, you can attack once with your regular weapon, and once with your offhand weapon. You resolve these attacks like normal, you just take a minus two penalty on your attacks. Right. Each one acts independently, like you have regular BAB. So, you know, your first weapon gets your BAB plus relevant modifiers, your second weapon gets your BAB plus relevant modifiers, but they both take a minus two. Right. Now, what happens with two-weapon fighting when you hit level six? Suppose, you're again, you're a full BAB class. Once you get six BAB, what do you do? First, you have to take improved two-weapon fighting, which will allow you to take iterative attacks with your offhand. But let's just give the example that if you didn't get two improved two-weapon fighting. You have two daggers again, and you have your six BAB. So with your primary hand, just like with the regular one, you take your six BAB attack, and then you take your one BAB attack, both of those at a minus two. That acted just like the regular weapons we saw before. With your offhand now, you take your 6 BAB attack at minus 2, and then you stop. Now, the reason you take improved 2 weapon fighting is that now you can take that second attack at 1 BAB at the minus 2 again. So now, if you start with a full round action standing right next to someone, you get 4 attacks. 2 with your primary hand, 2 with your offhand, all of them taking a minus 2. Right. Sound complicated? It's because it is. Never do it. Uh, I say that I built several <laughs> characters. <laughs> and there's another feat, greater two weapon fighting, which gives your offhand a third attack at a minus ten. So you get a, t- a total of five. Yeah, so two weapon fighting, it's lit, it's wordy, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around at first, but it's just easier to think of them as two independent weapons with their full BAB, just with the minus twos, as long as you're using those light weapons. Right. But your trade-off is you can do more damage, but it's less consistent. Sometimes you'll miss. Mm -hmm. you miss more often. It's common to do with rogues, because if you can take a full round action while flanking, and you get those four attacks, you have more chances for sneak attack. Now this is for you jerks who play werewolves, or for you DMs who need to know what happens with monsters. 
Natural attacks. Hey, hey, there's natural weapon is a valid thing. What play? What characters? Alchemists can be natural weapon fighters. Barbarians yeah. can be natural weapon fighters. Well, there you go. <laughs> the, the kind of people that play alchemists and barbarians. <laughs> I see how it is. It's totally legitimate. Uh, you, could, you could be a cat folk get claws. I've seen people Oh, that's get, true. You get yeah. those cool claws. All right, fine. Whatever. <laughs> now, uh, these are weapons that aren't manufactured. They're part of your body. Fangs, claws, tails, wings. The works. Uh, certain races get them. Certain classes can get them. You know, like alchemists can drink potions that give them natural attacks. So normally, uh, natural creatures when they do a standard attack, they just pick one of their weapons. Claws, they do two claws. Bite, they do a bite. But if they do a full attack action, they can hit with every natural attack they have. So suppose level one, you have two claws and a bite, and you get a standard, just a standard action. You can either hit them with one claw or hit them with one bite. Actually, you have them both claws, can't you? Oh no, only one claw. Yep, and you can hit them with one claw or one bite. But if that level one creature has a full round action, they can hit them with one claw, they can hit them with the other claw, and then they can hit them with the bite. They get every single attack they have at full BAB. Uh, just to make it completely ridiculous, suppose they have two claws, two hooves, a bite, horns, and wings, and they're only level one. They still can when they take. Don't forget a f- the tail slap. Yeah, tail slap. What? <laughs> Once they, if they get a full round action, they get to hit with both claws, with their bite, with both hooves, with both wings, with their horns, with their tail. They get all of their natural attacks. Now, obviously, this is the only reason for a dragon to come out of the sky ever. Yeah, <laughs> this is why dragons land sometimes. They can hit you with all the ridiculous natural weapons. Now you're saying, th- probably thinking like, "Wow, that's really powerful." I have to wait to level six usually to make multiple attacks. Um, people with natural weapons can make them at level one. There is a trade off. Suppose this guy with all the horns and just say the two claws and the bite they hit level six they have six bab they still do the exact same thing they do at level one they make an attack with both their claws at full bab and then they make their bite at full bab they don't get iterative attacks they don't get extra attacks they can just make all of them at once right and just one time that's right free actions there's not a ton of things that you can do as a free action we already covered a couple you could drop an item or you can go prone. Those are free actions. I and mean, if you reason you want to go prone is if you're using a ranged weapon, you get a benefit if you're prone. Uh, I mean, if you're facing a lot of ranged weapons, you get a benefit mm-hmm. uh, to your AC for going prone. Um, but those are a couple of free actions. There's not a lot of them I could think of off the top of my head. Most talking, but we went through that already. Right. Most uh, class things that you can do as a free action instead are swift actions. Yeah, so I, can't, I think entering a rage is a free action, for gotcha. instance. All right, so let's talk about some things that will uh, modify the battlefield. One of the big one is cover. This is the wall in front of you. Uh, things uh, An enemy between you and someone shooting at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, corners that impede your attacks and movements. Something between you and the thing trying to kill you. Determine whether or not you have cover from a ranged attack. You choose a corner of your square. If any line from this corner to any uh, any corner of the target square passes through a border that blocks line of effect or through a square occupied by a creature, the target has cover. And cover gives you plus four to AC. What Caleb just mentioned was with the ranged weapons. You pick a corner of one of your squares because you can make the attack from wherever you want in your square. If as long as there is a clear line between that corner and every corner of the enemy square, you can see them completely, then they do not have cover. But if... Any of those, um, to any of those corners is blocked by a wall or an obstacle, then they have the plus four to their AC. Melee attacks, you can have cover from them, 
Uh, if there's something like, I don't know, a chest high wall or something like that. A corner, some, anything along the lines of that. Right, that's probably where the most common you'll get is, is that corner of the wall and somebody wants to attack diagonally. Corners there. ruin everything. <laughs> I'm erasing corners from Ruin everything! Life. Oh, gosh. Corners. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, that will give you uh, the same kind of cover. Except it can be from... it. Ha- um, when you decide the cover from a melee weapon, it can be from any... You have to check all the corners. If any corner of your square to any corner of your target square goes through a wall or some sort of cover, then they get the plus four AC. Whereas with the range, it's just one. If you can find any one of those corners that works for you, then they don't get it. With melee, all of your corners have to work. If it's a reach weapon, just follow the same rules that I mentioned for ranged attacks. Mm-hmm. So if you are large, happen to be enlarged and you have a reach weapon, so you have that 15-foot reach, treat it like it is a bow or crossbow right. or something. A little caveat to like that chest-high wall or low obstacle. If you're closer to the object than the person you're attacking, you ignore that cover. So if you're against that wall but he's 10 feet from the wall and you got a reach weapon... Ignore that cover. He, you, you hit him. It allows a lot of tactical thinking. Right. So how exactly does cover help you other than the plus four to AC, which is really good. Suppose uh, melee, someone threatening you in melee, ha- you have cover against them. They cannot make an attack of opportunity against you. As long as you have cover from someone in melee, they cannot make an attack of opportunity against you. So you can move around the corner, you can cast a spell, you can do whatever around that corner, but they can't They can't make an attack of opportunity. That's right. If you have cover between you and a, and a splash effect, such as a fireball or something like that, you get a plus two bonus on uh, reflex saves against that attack. Suppose you're one of the sneakier types. Uh, if you have cover from someone else, you can make a stealth check to hide from them. Now, if it's not really big cover, they're probably going to still know you're behind the pillar or whatever. But for all intents and purposes, mechanically, you are hidden from them. You can, for instance, make a sneak attack or something, conceivably, if you play your cards right. There, there's a way you can stealth in plain sight. You take penalties. You can check that out on our skills uh, episode. We talk about stealth. Uh, soft cover. Um, this is when creatures, including your enemies... Or in between you and a ranged attack, you get plus four to your AC. Uh, you don't get any bonus on reflex saves, though, and it doesn't allow you to make your stealth check. You yes. can't hide behind your, behind an enemy like, oh, oh, the guy can't see me. I disappeared. Where did he go? There is a monk archetype that lets you do it, and it is stupid. <laughs> as long as you're adjacent to another creature, you can always make a stealth check. It is hilarious. That's great. But um, you ever play a, a SCP Containment Breach? Yes. There is a creature in that game. All you do is if you enter its area, you hear a little and for the rest of the game, it hides behind your head. And every once in a while, when you move your camera, you'll see a little bit of it. I never ran to that enemy. I got... It's super creepy. Like, and right in that area, there's just like an open door and a little container. Like, what was in here? And you find a paper and it talks all about this creature that predicts your movements and tries to hide behind your head at all times. Oh my gosh, that terrifies me. I got um, sick and tired of having my neck snapped by the rebar dummy, so I stopped playing it. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough. It's a good game, though. All right. uh, So suppose you got a creature that's large. Yeah, you do. (laughs) They take up, you know, four squares, four adjacent squares. That's how big a large creature is. When they determine cover between them and someone else, they kind of act more like range attacks. They can choose any of their five spaces to also... um, they can pick any square, but you can also pick any square to determine cover against them. So you both get the best of it. If a creature has cover 
but more than half the creature is visible. I'm hiding uh, this chest high wall again. Can't <laughs> Gears see of War time. Me. That's right. Uh, <laughs> Look at all these chest high walls. <laughs> Guess there's a battle here in about five minutes. Uh, you only get plus two instead of plus four to your AC, and only plus one bonus instead of plus two to your reflex throws. Uh, this is pretty much the GM tells you whether or not it's partial or full cover. <laughs> yeah, no, that stalk of bamboo ain't doing much for you. <laughs> now, uh, suppose that none of your corners of your squares can reach any corner of an enemy square or vice versa. Then you have total cover from that person. They can't even see you, first of all. Uh, it's like on the other side of the wall. You can't shoot where you think they are and have the bullet go through the wall and hit them. <laughs> you, you, you can't even make attack rolls against them because there's no really bonuses conferred for this. You just can't really make attacks against someone you can't see. Right. They can make stealth checks. They have total cover. You know, things like that. In some cases, like you're, you're trying to attack somebody who's hiding behind an arrow slit, cover can provide a better than plus four. Usually, it give you like everything's doubled. It gives you like a plus A or reflex eight to your AC or a plus forty reflex save, and it also gains improved evasion against any attack that uh, reflex save bonus applies. And if you listen to our, our uh, podcast about rogues and what's wrong with them, uh, spoiler everything. Um, <laughs> Not everything. <laughs> uh, they get uncanny dodge. You, we, we tell you like we were like singing the praises of improved evasion. Evasion is very powerful and it allows you to make that reflex save and take no damage. Yeah. Improve if you make a reflex save with regular evasion, you take no damage. If you fail a reflex save with improved evasion, you always take you take half damage. Right. So at best, uh, if you have this improved cover, which is really only granted to you with things that are designed as cover, like right. arrow slits. Uh, you get improved evasion, meaning you can only take half damage. This is this is the police that come in with the riot shields and just a little thing for the <laughs> eye slits, and they're moving them forward, and they like they're so heavy, you need like wheels to push them forward. Tower shields can provide cover. That's uh, right. They, 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 they provide regular them. cover. Or something. You're right. You're right. Um, and uh, improved cover gives you a plus ten bonus on stealth checks. Cool. You can, you can sneak around under There's, that arrow slit. Behind this arrow slit. Wow. Oh no, I'm stabbed. Well, let me come up. To- <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking somebody comes up to it and I spot and shoot him. No, the hand comes out of the slit <laughs> and stabs you and goes back in. That's a long, thin dagger. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> you said my gnome character was stupid. Well, my arm can fit through this slit. <laughs> now I'm going to get you. This <laughs> way it kind of sounds kind of like... I'm cold. the arrow slit stabber. <laughs> the purple shirted eye stabber. Um, now, um, cover goes hand in hand. Well, not hand in hand. Another... Thing similar to cover, but a totally different mechanic is concealment. Cover is there's something in between you and Physical, your target. Physical, a wall, a person, right. some sort of construct. You know. Concealment is any other reason you can't see them. Darkness. Fog. Invisible. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> Imagine that some sort of DM that would put somebody through like a maze with invisible creatures. He would be the worst. Ugh. You did that. That's that's. that's, that's <laughs> I was there. I You're saw quick that. there. I'm glad you caught that one. Um, <laughs> now, um, cover. I just did that because I had a ninja and I was tired of him uh, sneak attacking sneak everything. everything. <laughs> so in general, uh, cover will give you a bonus to your AC, some numerical value. It's harder to hit you. Concealment forces people to roll a percent chance to hit you. There's a, just a percent chance that if someone has concealment, your attack is going to just fail. You fail to hit them. You fail to target them because it's too dark. You can't make them out in the fog, something like that. Now, just like cover, suppose there's, you know, a smokestick fog in the middle of the battlefield. If you're making a range attack to figure out whether or not they have concealment in regards to your range attack, you treat it just like cover. You draw a line from one of your corners of your square to them, and if it goes through the fog, then you they have concealment. And then melee, again, works exactly the same as cover. Yeah. So 
the way that concealment is different than cover, so so far we always said it's the same, is that instead of getting like a plus four AC and everything, you actually have a percentage chance to miss. Mm-hmm. You roll your D percentile, which is the two or the big one if you're lucky and you have the hundred sided dice, and you roll it, and um, and depending on uh, if someone has concealment, they get a twenty percent chance to. Uh, sorry, if you attack somebody with concealment, you have a twenty percent chance to miss the target completely, even if your attack roll hits. Exactly. So we usually just to save time roll concealment before the attack is even made. So if you roll your D percentile, if it is 20 or lower, or 19 or lower, no, 20 or lower, because the minimum percent mm-hmm. is 1. If the percent is 20 or lower, then your attack just misses. And this is regular concealment, usually given to you from smoke sticks, uh, fog, uh, darkness, dim light, I should say, actually, gives you concealment. You can use concealment to make your stealth check. It's, so it's like a cover. If you have cover, you can make stealth. If you have concealment, you can make stealth. If the light is, if it's dim lighting, or there's smoke in between you and the enemy, then are you're in smoke, you can make a stealth check. Now, if the room is completely dark, I don't have dark vision. I'm just a stupid little human. This guy actually gets total concealment. What's that about? Total concealment means partial concealment or regular concealment, I should say, means you can kind of see make them out, but they are sort of shrouded. Total concealment means that they're invisible, that the smoke is so thick you cannot see through it. You cannot see them at all. Now, otherwise, this acts a lot like regular concealment. The difference being is that in order to hit someone with total concealment with an attack, they have to, the mischance is a 50% mischance. So you roll that D percentile. If it's 50 or lower, you miss. Right. And regardless of what you rolled for your attack roll, that is going to miss. Yeah, and if someone has total concealment, again, that means you can't see them at all. The most common way of doing this is invisible. So if someone's invisible or they have total concealment, you cannot take an attack of opportunity against them. That's right, because you don't know that they're moving past you. Exactly, you can't see them. You might hear them, but you're like, where are they? If a creature is invisible, you can make a perception check to notice the location of an invisible character. Uh, we talk, cover that in our skills episode. You can check that out under perception. Uh, an invisible creature character gets a plus 20 bonus on stealth checks. No freaking duh. If they're moving, if they're not moving, they get plus 40. Mm-hmm. You'll never see me. So good luck with that perception check, by the way. <laughs> but you can make it if you're super duper good. <laughs> I think that's just to locate. It doesn't specify here, but I believe, or at least how I do it, is that that's just to locate what square they're in. If you succeed at that, if you make an attack into that square, they still have total concealment. Right. But now you can actually, you know, target them with stuff. You know enough where they are to try to hit them, yeah. Now, um, with regular concealment, uh, that's caused by dim lighting. If your race has low light vision, you obviously ignore that mischance. And in total darkness, which grants total concealment, if you have a character has dark vision or some way of actually seeing in the dark, then obviously, again, you ignore that concealment. But that's only when it's caused by lighting. Now, that's all we're gonna, that's all that is about concealment. Uh, the next thing we're gonna be talking about is flanking. This is a, one of the most common bonuses you can get. It's when you are flanking a creature. Uh, you and another ally are flanking a creature. You can draw a line between the two of you and it passes through the creature. Uh, when you do this, you get a plus two bonus on your attack rolls. When you're flanking a medium-sized creature, what this means is that typically you have to completely surround them. One of you has to be on one side of them. One of you has to be on the complete opposite side of them in order to flank them. Right. But when it comes a little more difficult is when it's a large creature. In that case, uh, just remember that when you draw that line, one has to pass through one side of him and a house has to pass through the opposite side of that person. So if you're on the two corners of that big guy, no, you're not passing through opposite sides of him. But if one of you is on one side of him and the other guy is two squares away on the opposite direction, then you have that flanking. Oh, and in order to uh, flank, should have mentioned, uh, you have to be threatening your opponent, which means you have to have a weapon drawn, essentially. If you don't have a weapon drawn and you don't have improved on armed strike, you're not threatening, can you so... With, can, you, can you flank with a ranged weapon? 
Only if you take certain feats. Okay. You, you threaten areas with ranged weapons. Right. Snapshot, it's called. And if you have a uh, a reach weapon, that also counts for flanking. That's right. Uh, so that can give you a little a little buffer to uh, to strategize with. Yeah. Oh, again, if you just have you playing one of those creatures with uh, that are tiny or diminutive, and your DM probably hates you, um, <laughs> you have you have a reach of zero feet. You cannot help your allies flank. That's right. Which this will probably apply more to DMs. You can't flank people with mice. What is Christian coup de gras, or as us erudite and intelligent people call it, a coup de grace? <laughs> a coup de grace, just like uh, uh, our dervis. <laughs> I love our dervis. Oh it's, man, I'm hungry. Dang hungry. Yeah. Um, so coup de gras is completely butchering someone and killing them right out, or attempting to. Mechanically, what this means is that if there's an opponent that is helpless, which means they're either paralyzed by a spell, or they're at negative hit points but not dead yet, or they're asleep, you can take a full round action, granted you're adjacent to them, and attack them and try to kill them outright. You automatically hit with a coup de gras, and it's automatically a critical hit. So, And you roll your damage as normal with that critical hit damage. Once you make that attack, the opponent... Who you coup de grad has to make a fort save. If you haven't killed him outright with yeah. your damage. If he survives. Yeah, they just happen to somehow survive this. Suppose they were at full health and paralyzed, then that would probably be the case. They then have to make a fortitude save, which the DC is equal to 10 plus the damage you dealt, or they outright die. That's a very, very difficult fortitude save to make. It is very difficult. Uh, and guess what? If you're a rogue, you get your sneak attack damage from this. So they're basically never going to make that save unless they have, they're like giants with levels of barbarian, fighter, <laughs> improve, greater fortitude. Yeah. They're, they're gonna yeah. die. Usually when you make a coup de gras on someone, they die unless you're like a wizard with 1d4 minus 1 damage mm-hmm. on your dagger and you move next to someone. Now, if you're doing this against like an elemental or some other creature that's immune to critical hits, you can't actually do a coup de gras. Exactly. Now, as I said, this is a full round action, but it does provoke an attack of opportunity from anyone that could be threatening you. So be careful when you're doing it, or that is a way to save your allies if they were going for it. The enemy goes to coup de gras your ally and they invoke an attack of opportunity and you make a disarm attempt to save mm-hmm. their life, something along those lines. Another little small thing that doesn't come up a lot, but if uh, somebody is a uh, is has total concealment you can still do a coup de gras but it takes two full round actions one to find them and the one to deliver it oh wow that is an interesting one yeah i know this invisible guy's here (laughs) this is where all the invisible people sleep i know he's here now we're going to be going over a lot of more actions you can do in combat next one we're going to talk about is fainting this is essentially you know a pump fake you trick this opponent to think you're attacking pull your hand back and they look at this hand look at this hand look at this hand slap with the other hand (laughs) they flinch um, once you faint someone, they are flat-footed to your next attack. And then there's a lot of feats that improve how good you are at that. It's a standard action. You make a bluff check, and the DC of this is equal to 10, plus your opponent's base attack bonus, plus your opponent's wisdom modifier. It's like when you freaking try to uh, intimidate somebody. Like, it's, it's, it's not a simple DC. Yeah. yeah, the base attack bonus part is important. That means that this is actually very, very difficult against people who are good martial fighters, because right. good martial fighters are going to have high BAB. Right. Um, if the opponent is trained in sense motive, the DC is instead equal to 10 plus your opponent's sense motive bonus. If that's higher. If it's higher, yep. Uh, if it's successful, the next attack you make, uh, does not allow him to use his dex bonus to AC, which stinks because sometimes things like, oh, well, I had a plus one dex bonus. Well, that was really worth it. It happens a lot against really big things. Uh, Giants tend not to be very dexterous. The the weird thing about this is it's a standard action. So your next attack on him, so sometimes you might sacrifice, especially early levels, a whole round to get this. And it's only your next attack against them. Uh, Your allies 
allies still treat them as normal. This is, we're facing a guy. Why can't we hit him? Well, maybe at least I can hit him if I spend two rounds doing this. <laughs> now, a strange caveat in case you wanted to be someone that faints. If you try to faint against a non-humanoid creature, like an animal or something, you take a minus four, uh, I shouldn't even say animal, something that's non-humanoid, not, you know, stands on two legs upright, you take a minus four on your bluff check. You can still do it, but it's a little bit more difficult. If the thing you're trying to faint against is really, really dumb of animal intelligence, I should say, which means their int score is one or two, you take a minus eight penalty. And if the creature doesn't even have an intelligence score, which I think um, only oozes really fall into this <laughs> category, then you cannot faint against them. Or, or you're like that, 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 that dumb dwarf bard, stop trying to faint the wall. You had too much to drink. <laughs> I got him. I got him. He's scared this time. He's scared. Yeah, he saw a move. I saw a move. <laughs> uh, you want to take an improved faint if you're ever going to faint because then it lets you do a move action. So that round, you can do your attack. Right. There's a lot of feats to go with fainting. You can look them up. Just the ones worth mentioning are improved faint. It's a move action, so you can take a move action to faint and then stab them with a sneak attack. Right. There's greater faint, which makes them flat-footed against a bunch of attacks, things like that. Uh, also worth noting, fainting doesn't provoke an attack of opportunity, regardless if you have the feat or not. So there are some things that use splash attacks. Uh, this would be like throwing a potion that explodes, like Alchemist Fire, I think. Alchemist Fire, um, Acid. Or if you're an alchemist, throwing your bombs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are special rules with splash weapons. Now, splash weapons are typically require ranged attacks, uh, ranged attack rolls in order to hit. So you ignore their armor because, you know, if you get splashed with napalm, your armor doesn't really mean much, but you can still evade the vial. Uh, you can either make a ranged attack roll against an enemy themselves and hit them directly with the splash weapon, or you can try and aim at a certain uh, square on the grid or an intersection on the grid. All right, so when you uh, when you hit when you're trying to hit a player, a character, you arrange touch attack and hit against their touch AC. If you hit them, generally there's some special damage that'll apply if you hit them, and then there's splash damage to certain creatures around them. Yeah. If you target a, a intersection, you're only going to be doing that splash damage and no direct damage, right? Yeah. If you, for instance, if you're an alchemist, if you hit them directly, you do 2d6, or you do some number of d6 plus your modifier as damage. When you hit them with the splash of the weapon, you only deal the minimum amount of damage you can deal, as if you rolled all ones on the dice. Now, if I'm trying to hit a grid intersection instead of a character, what's the AC? You just have to hit an AC5, that's it, and then apply any relevant range penalties. Typically, throwing weapons, splash weapons only have a... About a 10-foot range increment, maybe a little bit more. Now listen, I got a bomb. What do I care if it misses? What happens if it misses? If you miss the target you're aiming for, whether it be a grid intersection or an enemy, you have to roll to determine which adjacent square it actually lands in, which will then affect the splash radius of the weapon. Gotcha. Uh, if you if you uh, roll that, you roll a d8, and if you roll two through eight, you know you count those squares around, and you know eight, one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, and that's the square it falls in. But if you roll if you roll a one, it actually will fall short of the target, and you like a straight line from you to where you're trying to hit. It falls short. Yeah, so the it's just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight going clockwise, and the one starts the closest space between you and your opponent. So next we're gonna be take talking about a bunch of kind of attack actions you can take, combat yeah. maneuvers and things that go along with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we go into actual combat maneuvers, we're gonna start with talking about charge. Uh, charging is just what it sounds like. You run straight at an enemy to attack them. And this is a full round action. 
You move up to twice your movement speed, and again, like uh, drawing a weapon before, you can draw a weapon as part of this. If your PAP is one or more, 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 more. <laughs> uh, so you can draw a weapon when you do this. Uh, you charge at them, you move up to twice your movement speed, and when you reach them, you have to aim for the square closest between you and them. Mm. When you reach them, you make an attack roll. Your attack gets a plus two bonus on it because you know you're running straight at them. You got a lot of force behind your hit, mm. but you take a minus two to your AC until your next turn. You have to move at least 10 feet because there's like some restrictions to make sure you don't just like do this all the time there's nothing that can be in between you and your target no difficult terrain no obstacles nothing at all remember that dms if your barbarian's charging and killing everything you can't charge your difficult terrain <laughs> what's that rocks fell now difficult terrain <laughs> <laughs> i wish you had just killed my character <laughs> <laughs> this is a fate worse than death. <laughs> you have to be able to have line of sight to the target. You can't take a five foot step in the same round as a charge because it's like a full. It's like normally I said full attack. Excuse me, full round action. So you take a five foot step. Not with this. This is your movement because the the five foot step stipulation is if you don't otherwise move in right. your turn. Like you can't take a five foot step and then take a move action to move thirty feet. Now here's a very special rule, and I don't know anything else that follows this, but if you're only able to take a standard action on your turn, you can still charge, but you're only allowed to move up to your full speed instead of double your speed, and you can't draw a weapon unless you possess the quick draw feat. The reason I say this is very unique, because you can't elect to do this, it only happens if you cannot take a, uh, a full round action. Right. If you're only able to take a standard action. So if you're staggered, in which case you only take a move or standard action, then you can charge. Or during the surprise round, um, you can't take a full round action, so you can take a standard action or charge. But you can't elect to do this right. if you can take a full round action. Correct. In addition to the plus two to the attack rolls you get for charging, you also get a plus two on combat maneuver checks made to bull rush. And we'll be talking about combat maneuvers and bull rushing in just a moment. Uh, and you can you can uh, only hit them with one attack. I don't care if you have nine weapons and 16 arms. You get one attack, one strike when you make a charge action. Right. The, there is an exception to that. There's an ability called Pounce, which uh, things like jaguars, you know, animals tend to get. Players can get it under certain circumstances. But for the most part, you can only take one attack when at the end of a charge. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a weapon that has the brace feature, such as a spear or a trident or things like that, you can ready that weapon. And ready that weapon means uh, after they charge and, and get, come at you, you can attack them. And if you hit, you do double damage. So it's pretty much like an automatic crit. Yeah, you take a prepared action to attack them if they, you know, come within range. It's like a ready to action. And if they specifically charge into you, your prepared action goes off. And if you hit, you deal double damage. Right. I don't care about this. Really. <laughs> um, do you want to mention if you want? Yeah. <laughs> really important for cavaliers because they have a whole thing with charging. If you have a lance equipped when you charge someone and attack them, you deal, I believe, you deal double damage. Uh, that's just really important for cavaliers mostly. Or if you just have to be a barbarian with one on the ground. <laughs> oh, wait, no, only mounted, excuse me. I don't know about you, but I like to put lots of big gaps in my game. My game. And I have vines so you can go past those traps. Uh, me too. You know, yeah. I, I play a lot like it's like Tomb Raider yeah. or Pitfall for the regular Nintendo. Hey, spoiler. No, we don't. <laughs> but there are rules if you do. Uh, you can swing using a rope or similar aid within reach to make a uh, a single melee attack against them as part of a... Uh, Oh, this isn't even a charge, is it? I guess it's its own thing. <laughs> is this its own thing? Why is it in between charge? Source of people of the river. <laughs> right, as a full round action, you can swing using a rope and then make a single melee attack. Pretty much a charge, except that you're swinging. 
Uh, and you must... have to move at least 20 feet instead of at least 10 feet in order to do a charging swing. Each certain elevation is equal or higher than that of your opponent. <laughs> That'd be silly. It's so stupid. <laughs> but you know what? If it comes up, it's one of those things where it might come up. And it, when I'm playing, and I don't know this rule, I just come up some like yeah. I come up with some house rules. It's probably gonna be something very similar. They're just putting it in there to to just have it in there in case it happens. But in case you're playing Pitfall, the tabletop game, <laughs> you can right. you can charge from vines. Technically, it has to have the same sound. Let's talk about some of the one of the most important things about when you're fighting is combat maneuvers. To make a combat maneuver, uh, general for all of them is you roll your CMB versus their CMD. That's like when you roll an attack versus somebody's AC, the solid number that you're trying to get equal or above. Yeah, that's a little confusing because they sound similar. One is combat maneuver bonus, um, which is your base attack bonus plus your strength modifier. Plus, you know, if you're large or something, you get a bonus. If you're small, you get a penalty. The other one being combat maneuver defense, which is composed of your 10, just like AC, you have a base of 10 plus your base attack bonus plus your strength modifier, plus your dexterity modifier, and then size modifiers. Right. If you are using a combat maneuver against somebody who is unconscious or otherwise incapacitated, your maneuver automatically succeeds. This is also something where if you roll a 20, it's an automatic success, or a 1, it's automatic failure. Right, because it's like an attack roll. So typically, you make a combat maneuver. There's a lot of different ones that will be going over, but generally you can do them either A, with your hands, or B, with your weapon. Uh, there's not a, there is some differences between them. For instance, if you want to grapple someone, you obviously need to use your hand. You can't grapple someone with a weapon. And you would just use your combat maneuver bonus. But suppose you're a fighter with, say, a halberd, and you want to trip somebody. Well, first of all, the halberd has a trip special quality, which you add any bonuses from that. And suppose you have weapon-focused trip. That plus one to your attack rolls applies to your combat maneuver check to trip them as long as you're using the weapon. So if you're using a weapon, any bonuses that would apply to your weapon's attack roll apply to your combat maneuver check. That's right. So let's go through them. Bull Rush. This is kind of similar to the charge. Uh, it's a standard action, and it's part of a charge, but instead of attacking them as a melee, you're trying to push them and move them. You can't choose, like, where to push them. You push them the opposite, di- the, the, the direction that you are running in, uh, and you get to move them back five feet, and for every five by which you're... CM, your roll exceeds their CMD, you need to push your back another 5 feet. So if someone had a combat maneuver defense of, say, 20, and you rolled a 25 on your combat maneuver check to bull rush them, they would move back 10 feet. Well, you get to choose to move with them. So you can either slam into them and push them back, or you can move with them. Up to It's up to you. But you have to have the available movement to do so. As is the case with almost every single one of these combat maneuvers, if you don't have the feet for improved bull rush, improved whatever combat maneuver we're talking about, it's going to invoke an attack of opportunity. That's correct. Okay. If you fail, you just end up right next to them. Yeah, n- n- nothing happens. Right. There's some strange special circumstances where if there's, like, people in a line you're trying to push, you have to make a check against their CMD as well at a penalty. We're not going to go into the specifics here. You can... Should we? Uh, yeah, you can look it up. It's yeah. it's just... it's a. It's, it's something that won't really come up very often. Unless you're trying to fight, like, five goblins in a row and try to push them all off a cliff, like Leonidas in 300. Now, what um, most people are going to try to do with this is something that the game doesn't allow, making it kind of boring. You can't, for instance, pin someone against a wall. If you push them, you can't push them into a solid object. So you'd think that that would deal some sort of damage, but right. they just kind of stop. Right. But you can still push them into, like, pits and stuff. 
Another kind of combat maneuver is called a dirty trick. And this is where you're pulling down the guy's pants, throwing <laughs> sand in his eyes. You're, this is high school all over again. Is yeah. This. <laughs> when you're playing an edgy teenager character. <laughs> a black hair that falls in front of his face and covers one of his eyes. Oh, Final Fantasy 15? Are you playing that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, dirty trick is the most varied of... It's a unique combat maneuver in that it is multiple combat maneuvers in one. You can say whatever you want to do, but it is limited to causing any of the following conditions. You can blind someone, for instance, throwing dirt in their eye, smearing blood in their face, something like that. Uh, you can dazzle them. Just by your roguish good looks. Yeah, exactly. You wink, give them a wink and they're like, oh my. <laughs> oh my. My cheeks are hot. <laughs> uh, you can deafen them. I don't know. You cup your hands and smack them over their oh, ears. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> You can entangle them, you know, pull their pants down. Yeah. Uh, you can cause them to become shaken. I don't know, like, uh, ring something against their helmet. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah, like, bash them in the helmet. Yeah. Or you can cause them to be sickened by... Sucker kick, punch them in the gut. Kick them in the balls, you oh, know. Oh, nice. <laughs> good, play a good old game of Rochambeau with them. <laughs> uh, but what Christian said is, if you listen carefully, you can pick one of them. You don't, you don't apply two of these with any one thing you do. Yeah, so for one round, they have this condition on them. This if is, you beat their combat maneuver defense. If if you beat it by five or more, and for every five you do beat it by, one additional round they'll suffer that penalty. Typically, they can get rid of this condition with a move action. For instance, they can pull their pants up, they can rub something out of their eyes, right. things like that. Making They this... could speak in a high voice and hold their balls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Making this not one of the best tricks or combat maneuvers. Right. You basically, again, this would invoke an attack of opportunity if you don't have greater or improved dirty trick. There is greater dirty trick, which instead of this condition being applied for only one round, is applied for 1d4 rounds. And you also, they have to take a standard action and remove the Instead of a move action. Penalty. It, pretty much any common maneuver, you really, if you're going to do it a lot, get the feats for it. Exactly. But these still can be used in without the feats. Oh, should mention it now before we go any further that um, improved feats kind of fall into two categories based on their prerequisites. Uh, bull rush and other strength-based ones, you need to have power attack in order to take. Dirty trick and kind of disarm kind of uh, fancier ones, they typically require combat expertise in order to take. Meaning that you need at least 13 strength to do stuff like bull rush. We're going to point them out as we get to them. And you need at least 13 int to do stuff like dirty trick. Right. Now, uh, with dirty trick, you'll notice that all these conditions are not equal. Why would you ever dazzle someone when you can blind them, <laughs> give them a minus one on their attack rolls, or make them flat-footed against everybody and not be able to take attack rolls? Blinded being the one that is obviously much more powerful than the rest of them. So if you're a rogue and you blind someone, you get, like, you know, agile maneuvers, so you can use your dexterity modifier for this, and you can blind someone for a few rounds and get off some sneak attacks. This could be potentially very powerful. I think uh, the reason this is is because what if you're fighting a creature with four eyes yeah. or you know different monstrous things you won't be able to do, all the things you can think of. It's rewarding your creativity. The more creative you are, probably the better condition you can grab. There is, uh, I think it's an archetype of the swashbuckler can pull off a bunch of dirty tricks as part of his class features. I think it's Slayer. Slayer, okay. Slayer, yeah, and they can opt to do a dirty trick instead of sneak attack right. damage, which is actually very good. So if you're really interested in being the scoundrel, you might want to pick the Slayer. You have too many arms for me, Christian. What could I do about that? Um, you could disarm me? <laughs> That's what it's about, right? I think. Listen, like, I, just just, read, just, I just read titles, okay? You, you just chop I don't them need off. to. You're fighting that guy from Mortal Kombat. You're like, no, I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> I just read titles. I don't worry about the rules. Dodge, that must mean that I can use that to dodge attacks. I use dodge. 
There <laughs> we go. It says dodge. <laughs> so I like to sense his motive. Uh, it doesn't like. What is his motive? Why is he doing this? How was he brought up as a child? Disarm. Take away somebody's weapon. Again, do you need improved disarmor? This is going to provoke an attack of opportunity. You make an attack roll with your weapon, and if your attack's successful, the target drops one item it's carrying against. I'm oh, sorry, make attack versus their CMD instead of your a, their AC. And if your attack is successful, your target drops one item it's carrying of your choice. Even if the weapon is held, the item is held with two hands. If you're unarmed while you do this, you get a minus four penalty on the attack. Really? I, I imagine the monks disarming people being a thing, but I guess not. I've, I never really read in depth of this. Which makes it hard because CMD is higher than AC generally. Yes, very much. Um, so, excuse me. Um, if you exceed their CMD by ten or more, the target drops the item it's carrying in both hands. Uh, so if it has one in each hand, drops them both. Um, and they just land in their square on the floor so they can pick it up as a move action. Here's the worst thing ever. If your attack fails by 10 or more, you drop the weapon that you are using to attempt to disarm. And by the way, if you are unarmed, you take that penalty and you disarm them, you get their weapon. Ah. So the monk is using fury blows and all of a sudden he's got two knives. (laughs) I've heard stories about this. Uh, The brawler can get feats for free. It's kind of funny because you can take someone's weapon and then get all the feats for that weapon and be better at them with their own weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, look, a scorpion whip. I'm better than you at it. The brawler is like so much work. Oh, yeah. You have to know all the feats and such. So much work. Now, Christian, you're a real drag. What can I do against that? Um, get more strength and dexterity, so your combat maneuver defense is higher. Oh, okay, all right. What is drag? Just so it sounds like it's moving someone around in the dra- battlefield. You drag them in a straight line behind you, but you don't deal any sort of damage to them. It's kind of like bull rush, but in the opposite direction, I guess you could say. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you oh. anyone who's more than one size larger than you. Before we forget, this is one of the power attack-based combat maneuvers, and disarm was one of the combat expertise-based combat right. maneuvers. Meaning this, you have to be strong for a drag, you have to be smart for a disarm. That's right. And if you're a wizard, don't do either. <laughs> you get spells that do it for you, don't That's worry. That's right, don't worry. You get Chain of Perdition. <laughs> uh, just like all the other ones, most of the other ones, you roll a combat maneuver... A CMB check against their CMD. If you succeed, you start dragging them. You start moving them behind you. As per usual, for every five, you move them five feet. For every five you exceed their CMD, you move them an additional five feet. That's right. Now, uh, moving someone like this against their will does not provoke attack of opportunity unless you get the greater drag feat. All right, so one of the most complicated maneuvers uh, you can do is grappling. You know, grabbing someone's shirt, you know, getting a hold of them. You, but it's really, really complicated. Uh, this is one of the power attack-based mm-hmm. combat maneuvers. It's a standard action. You make a combat maneuver check against their CMD. If you succeed, you now both have the grappled condition. With you as the person grappling them. Yes, who the person controlling the grapple is important for a lot of reasons. But when you make the check and you succeed, you are the grappler. They call you the person who initiated the grapple. And you both have the grapple position, meaning you get small penalties. Mm-hmm. to your uh, AC and you can't make attacks with anything but light weapons. Uh, as as the initiator, you can release them as a free action while they have to do some uh, other checks we'll get into in a little bit. Uh, if you don't release the grapple, you must make a check each round as a standard action to maintain the hold. And uh, if your target doesn't break the grapple, you get plus five circumstance bonus on grapple checks made against the same target. Which means each round, you have to make that check, you get five more. It gets easier and easier for you. Um, as a standard action, so you're just holding on to this person. Right. So it's a standard action. You keep someone in this grapple, but you can still move. You and your tar, you can move the person you're grappling. If you're the person who initiated the grapple and is controlling the grapple, you can move you and the grappled target up to half your speed. 
After you're done moving, you can place the person you're grappling in any square adjacent to you. If you're going to put them in, like, over a pit or something, they get a free attempt to break free of your grapple. With any, a plus four bonus. Any location that would be considered hazardous. Right. Uh, like I mentioned, you can only at- you cannot use big weapons when you're grappled. You can only use unarmed strikes, natural attacks, light or one-handed weapons. And you take the requisite penalties for being grappled on those attacks. Uh, if you've grappled them, you can now try to pin them, which is another check, just as a CMB versus their CMD, and then you can pin them. You get the grapple condition, but they get the pin condition. So you don't get the you, you stay with the grapple condition. You also lose your dexterity modifier to AC though. So you're pretty vulnerable while you have someone pinned. But someone who is pinned basically cannot move. They have they're flat footed, they have no dexterity bonus to their AC. They take a minus four to their armor class because they're prone. Typically, they are. It's a more constricted version of being grappled. All they can really do is try and get away from the dra- grapple. They can't make. They can take verbal and mental actions, but they can't really cast spells because that will require them moving their hands and such. Then they can't also make attacks and things like that. Uh, if they're pinned, restrained, or unconscious, and you got rope, you can tie them up. Pretty much the difference here is that it makes it harder for them to escape. The DC for them to escape is equal to 20 plus your CMB instead of your CMD. Yeah, until someone cuts them out or they manage to get out of that 20 plus your combat maneuver bonus, they are stuck in just like they're pinned, kind of. They can't move their arms and cast spells. They can't make attacks. If you're using bindings that are higher than that number would give you, they have to use that number. It's whatever's higher. Um, if you have somebody who's grappled, not pinned, and you want to tie them up, you can try to tie them up, but you make your check at a minus 10. Now, suppose someone grappled you. What can you do? Uh, you could try to break out of the grapple as a standard action. You just make a combat maneuver check against their CMD. If you succeed, then either A, you break out of the grapple, or you can decide to become the person controlling the grapple, meaning you can move them around, you can try to pin them, and now they have to try and break out of the grapple. Mm -hmm. Now, if you just want to completely, you know, gang up on someone, you want to have a real party and grab this guy with everyone you got, you can do that. Multiple people can grapple one target. For every person assisting the original grappler, the one controlling the grapple, they get a plus two. This is nine guys jumping on the guy with the football. (laughs) (laughs) And then other guys can help somebody try to break free from a grapple, pulling these people off of the dog pile. (laughs) Here come the refs. Uh, And each person gives the the guy a plus two bonus to his CMB check. If you're going to be a monk or someone who grapples in general, read up on the rules. (laughs) Yeah, it's complicated. We're going to go over some uh, specific scenarios on on bonus credits, extra credits, so check that out. Don't make your GM remember it all. <laughs> oh, please, no. Don't, don't expect him to tell you exactly what's going on. You should have to c- take care of that. Right. Because I'm certainly not going to remember these rules off the top of my head. Right. Another thing you can do is you can overrun somebody. This is a power attack-based maneuver, meaning you have to be strong to do this one. Uh, like Bull Rush, this is something that you do as part of a charge, part of your move. Uh, you can attempt to overrun your target moving through their square and getting past them. You can't do this to someone if they are more than one size category larger than you. So if you're medium, you can't do this to a huge size creature. You can do it to a large size creature. What makes this different from just doing the acrobatics check? Yeah, um, acrobatics check is acrobatics. This is combat maneuver. If you're not good at acrobatics, you do this. And this you can do as part of a charge, so you can move double your movement speed. Yes. Now, unless you have the improved overrun feat, of course this would focus on attack of opportunity. If you fail, you just stop in front of them just like you would if you tried to bull rush them and you failed. The person you're trying to overrun can choose to get out of the way. 
And if that's the case, they just hop out of the way, you run on by, like if they were blocking a door, now you go to the other side of the door or something, and now they're out of the way. If they try to stand their ground, then you make a combat maneuver check against their combat maneuver defense. If you succeed, you move through their space. And if you succeed by five or more, you move through their space, and they're knock prone. Nice. Yeah. Don't get in front of those linebackers, I'm just saying. If the target happens to have a lot of legs, this is difficult. Uh, you get the plus two to the DC of a overrun check for every additional leg. So your spiders with, what, six legs they have? Yep. Yeah, they're going to get uh, for every additional That's leg. It. I'm knocking this centaur down! <laughs> and I'm getting past his square. I don't care what you say. A greater overrun means that if you have that feat, they cannot choose to avoid you. They always have to try and stop you, and then they can get knocked over. The next combat maneuver is called reposition. Uh, just what it sounds like, you're taking someone and you're you're moving them to another square adjacent to you. This is one of the power attack-based combat maneuver checks. You do it as a standard action, uh, simple CMB versus or CMD. If you succeed, you can move them five feet. You can reposition the person five feet to a new location. The, the difference between this and, and, and bull rushing is that you can move them in any direction. This right. is... I'm, I'm, I'm almost, I don't want to use the word grappling because that's a condition. Yeah. Me and you were working fisticuffs and, and we're struggling and I'm shove you over to the next spot. For every five which you exceed their CMD, you move them an additional five feet. So, so you, you can, can throw them ten feet to your left. Yeah. Now the target has to remain within your reach the whole time, so you can just move them, you know, all around you, but they have to still be within reach. Except for the final five feet of movement, which can be a space adjacent to you. Oh yeah, reach. so you, to could, reach. you could toss them a little outside your reach, just right. five feet out of it. So I can't, I can't toss them 15 feet unless my reach is 10, which you'd have to be some sort of monstrous creature. Uh, when you move them around, they don't evoke attack of opportunity, unless you have greater reposition as a feat. Dealing is an imp-based one, which you need a combat expertise for. And this is just taking something from somebody in a standard action. You can take any item that they're not holding or is, that it, or is not in their bag. That's what makes it different from disarm. Uh, you must have at least one hand free to attempt this maneuver. You make your check. And, oh, first you have to you have to say what item you're going to do. You're going to try to steal before you make the check. The wand on their belt, the scroll attached to their backpack, something like that. Right. You make the check. and if you're We only steal stuff from wizards for some reason. <laughs> but who else has anything worth stealing? <laughs> I'd like to steal the ring of fire resistance off of the emperor's fingers. <laughs> Whoop! <laughs> you make your CMB versus their CMD, and if you succeed, you get it. If they have uh, anything fastened to them, uh, cloaks, sheath weapons, such like that, they get a plus five bonus to their CMD or greater, but something like I've I've body wrapped my sheath onto me. <laughs> <laughs> if they're actually like wearing the item, like their armor, their rings, their backpack, their boots, you can't take it off them unless maybe they're unconscious. Um, then you In steal their boots just, and they wake up and they go, "Where are my boots? They weren't even valuable." Why was <laughs> I wearing my boots to sleep? <laughs> this is now a dirty trick. Maneuver. <laughs> this one's uh, really subject to what to do uh, by the DM. What you can and cannot steal. Mm-hmm. Frogs can attack of opportunity unless you have improved steel feet. In case you want to really be Indiana Jones, you can use a whip to do this. <laughs> and you take a minus four on your check, though. Unless you have the greater steel feet, the enemy is always aware that you just did this to them. They're, they're not like, huh, oh, my wand's missing. No, they're like, hey, <laughs> you took my wand. I want that back. And you just go steal, steal, steel maneuvers back and forth. <laughs> and uh, this is obviously something you would do in combat. If you were out of combat, you would attempt a sleight of hand check to do this. Right. But in combat, you have to use the steel combat maneuver. Let's talk about Sundering. Let's not. Okay. I hate Sundering. Trip. Uh, you can attempt to trip. <laughs> sundering is, oh, you see that, mag- that plus four magical flaming sword? Now it's just a plus four sword. Deal with it. Yeah, you, get, you lose magical abilities if your weapon's broken. Really? Yup. So that's how much I hate this and never looked into it. <laughs> 
So Sundering is a power attack based combat maneuver, and it's attacking someone, an object, not a person, you're attacking an object. You're trying to sunder their sword, you're trying to break their sword, their armor, a potion on their belt, something like that. Mm -hmm. You do this in place of a melee attack, much like uh, the, what was the other one? Um, Disarm. Disarm. You made an attack roll versus their uh, CMD. And if you don't have the improved Sunder feet, you provoke an attack of opportunity. If your attack is successful, you deal damage to the item normally. Yay. Um, item damage is so fun, isn't it? Well, yeah, we're, we'll talk about when we talk about weapons, items, and things. Uh, yeah. We'll talk about weapon damage, and, uh, item damage, and stuff like that. Just acid's really annoying, just know that. Uh, <laughs> if and, you deal up to half of the hit points of the weapon, it gets the broken condition. And if it's broken, it's no longer magical. Right. It loses any magical property it had, uh, and it takes a penalty on attack rolls. And be careful, not just if it gets damaged. If you just deal hit points, you have to give it the broken condition to mm-hmm. lose that magic. Deal at least half of the item's hit points da- as damage. Uh, if you if you get it down to zero hit points, obviously you destroy it. You can choose to destroy it. Right. Or just leave it at one hit point. And broken, because you might want that after it's done or something. Just still, still plus four sword, and I want that. No, if you're going to Sunder, this is really, really, really annoying because <laughs> every single item, based on the materials it's made out of and how much it is enchanted, have different damage reduction and called hardness and different hit points. and diff- It's all a really big fuss. There's a whole table that tries to explain this. Mm-hmm. Don't even get me started on Sundering Armor because it states that one of the variables is the thickness of the armor <laughs> and it's like oh let me just calculate how let me just look that up in my table because that's clearly here. listed somewhere just know that this is really annoying um it's definitely a really useful thing to have mm-hmm. if you're a barbarian sundering people's magic weapons that's awesome right. you know you lose you lost your vorpal blade that's the whole thing your reason you're here that's like a whole story arc for you and i just <laughs> cut it in half <laughs> But just look it up for look up the hardness and try and help your DM with that one because that is very difficult to memorize. But I'm just saying, if you want to use that to ruin the storylines we have for you, your opponents can try to sunder your stuff as well. You know that magic weapon you were so excited about getting gone. <laughs> I'm taking it away from you Wait. forever. Every every combat you get into, breaking your weapons. Every time you go back to the town, 50 miles away, get a new weapon. As I will break every weapon you bring at me. Every spell. Cast- That's it. Rust monsters everywhere. Every spellcaster is going to prepare disintegrate as a spell and destroy your weapons mathematically and systematically. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you get, he just comes out of the fog. The rust monster used as a wand of disintegrate. <laughs> There is no escape. And it used it with one of its antennas so it could still make its attack actions. It's a, it, it's a magus, actually. <laughs> so it makes it as part of spell combat. It attacks your weapon, then it casts a disintegrate on it through its own weapon, which it then attacks with and destroys it. It's gone. As much as we're throwing shade on this, it's uh, it, it's it, valid. It's valid, definitely. It's definitely valid. It's I just hate looking at hit points. That's right. I'm so, I don't want to do work. I'm, the, I just, <laughs> I'm a DM. I'm what do you expect? I don't want to do work. Uh, I prepare about five minutes before you guys come here. <laughs> like, man, I've been preparing this all week. If I prepare it all. <laughs> uh, the last common maneuver we're going to go over is tripping. And this is where instead of a melee attack, much like the Sunder, you can go versus their CMD. And if you succeed... You knock them prone. This is an int-based one. You need combat expertise to do it. Mm-hmm. Just like uh, pushing them or whatever it was. Which one was the legs one? Overrun. Overrun. Just like overrun, if they had a lot of legs, obviously it's hard to trip them. You can't trip someone without legs like an ooze. <laughs> knock the ooze. It's a cube. It goes on the other side. <laughs> it has, it's amorphous. What did you expect to happen? Uh, flying creatures can't be tripped. Uh, swimming creatures 
can't be tripped i would assume don't even try it if you don't have the improved this is a theme i don't know if you notice it yet <laughs> if you don't have improved trip it does provoke attack opportunity because you know you're not allowed to do anything fun unless you take a three feet chain first that's right <laughs> which is exactly why in our feet rework episode we talk about why one of the feats at least i use is that we combine all the improved combat maneuvers into a just two different ones so it's a lot easier to get access to this stuff in our house rules episode um, now that's all the combat maneuvers they're very they're varied and obviously they're only useful against certain enemies if your enemy isn't using weapons sunder isn't going to help you and disarm isn't going to help you if they have a lot of legs or can't be tripped you know trip isn't going to help you overrun's not going to help you there's different combat maneuvers for different situations you get yourself into that is it check out the extra credit for a couple things about attacking while underwater that's a lot of fun oh yeah mounted combat and uh, some things about grappling Thanks for listening, and class dismissed. Pathfinder Academy is part of the Trailblazer Network. Visit our site for other great Pathfinder podcasts. I've been Nicholas Laborde. Thanks for listening.